0: Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. The eyes of the world this week are on Zimbabwe, where voters went to the polls on Sunday in a landmark election, the first since longtime leader Robert Mugabe was ousted by the army last year. Bill Corcoran will join us shortly with the latest from Harare. We're going first to the United States, though. And although the midterm elections there are still more than three months away, the country's political system is already very much in election mode. And with President Donald Trump continuing to cause or embrace controversy at every turn, his actions are increasingly being scrutinised in the context of those elections and what they might mean for the chances of the Republican Party keeping control of both houses of Congress come the autumn. Suzanne Lynch is our Washington correspondent and she joins me now from there. Um, Suzanne, it's been another hectic and interesting week in the White House. Before we look at the significance of the latest events in the context of the, the Trump presidency, could I ask you just to give us some of the highlights? What do you think have been the main developments of the past few days?
1: Um, well, I think, I mean, in the last few weeks, the focus was on the fallout from the Vladimir Putin meeting in Helsinki and, and the kind of um, the reaction of the Republican Party and the horror by some uh, within Donald Trump's party about his his whole handling of that situation. But in the last few days over the last week, I think the, the focus really has turned to trade. And I think what we have seen again to the horror of many in the Republican Party is a real Real insight into the incoherence, really, of Donald Trump's trade policy. Uh, Remember last week, Jean-Claude Juncker, uh, the European Commission president, arrived in Washington, um, really amid signs of a seriously deepening trade war between the EU and the United States. Um, But after a couple of hours meeting in the Oval Office, uh, both leaders emerged to say a deal had been done. Uh, The European Union had decided to buy more soybeans, buy more LNG uh, energy, and negotiation with the U.S. about reducing tariffs eventually to zero. And this seemed to to, uh, be enough for the U.S. president. Um, But I think this was was just an example, again, of um, Donald Trump's flip-flopping, his incoherence on so many issues. Last week we saw him. One of the reasons he got to this deal, I think, with the EU was that he he needed a win politically in terms of trade. Uh, The trade tariffs that Donald Trump has introduced on steel and aluminium and others are beginning to have an effect on his own voters on his own constituents because of the retaliatory measures that have been brought in in response so this is particularly in the farming community um but also in in things like the automobile industry last week uh, just the day before he met Juncker, uh, general motors uh issued a very stark uh, set of results saying that they were being impacted by rising steel and aluminium costs uh, similarly fiat chrysler have also sounded warnings uh, along these lines. And then, of course, the farming community is struggling uh, from uh, this pressure from some of their export markets. And so extraordinarily on Tuesday, again, the day before uh, Jean-Claude Juncker arrived here in Washington, uh, the Trump administration announced a $12 billion, essentially bailout for farmers that were being affected. So we had this extraordinary uh, sight of a Republican president giving a bailout to farmers for policies which he himself had introduced. And again, mm. a lot of Republicans in the Senate in particular strongly criticise this move, saying, you know, farmers don't need handouts, uh, they need free trade. So, uh, like it uh, is so almost yes to again,
0: a, a communist type, uh, almost like exactly, a communist type approach. Yeah.
1: Exactly. It's, it's almost like in two, on two ways he's going against everything that the Republican Party stands for in terms of economics. Protectionism, essentially. And second of all, uh, government, government uh, help, government uh, funding for, for businesses that, uh, that are not doing well on their own. So this is, you know, again, showing how Donald Trump is completely ripping up the rule book in terms of republicanism. Um, But we did see, um, as I said, a lot of mumblings of discontent from Congress about these moves
0: by the president. And you mentioned he's flip-flopping on trade. And um, on the Russia investigation, I don't know if it counts as a flip-flop, but there's kind of evidence emerging in recent days, isn't there, of a kind of change in strategy by the White House on their response Mm. to the investigation investigation into alleged collusion with Russia in the in the 2016 election. Tell us about that.
1: Absolutely. And this this is going to be a big issue this week. Paul Manafort, Trump's former campaign manager, is due in court today, Tuesday, in Virginia, on tax and, and uh, banking fraud-related charges. Um, so it's a big week for the Russia investigation. But we have seen, particularly Rudy Giuliani, uh, Trump's lawyer, come out strongly over the weekend, um, early this week, Taking on uh, critics of Donald Trump, and essentially the new argument seems to be that collusion is not a crime. Uh, he said that in a long-ranging, kind of rambling interview at CNN on Monday morning, say, insisting that collusion was not a crime. Donald Trump then on Tuesday morning tweeted the, the same line. Um, now, legal experts have pointed out that you're right, collusion may not be per se uh, a crime, but obviously anything that uh, shows influence or, you know, seeking influence or gaining influence from an outside power in an election is, is, is illegal. Um, so this seems to be the line the, uh, the Trump administration is pushing, even though, of course, Trump has been a pain to point out there's no collusion. Now he's saying, well, actually, collusion is not the problem at all. Um, we also see a real worry, I think, uh, within the Trump circle about the position of his former lawyer, Michael Cohen, who is essentially... Um, essentially appears to be cooperating in some way with with prosecutors for the Mueller investigation and for FBI prosecutors. Um, He uh, released, his lawyer released a tape he had made a recording with Donald Trump. This this prompted a furious response from Trump who said more or less what kind of lawyer tapes uh, his client. So I think there are real worries here that he is going to start cooperating. What does he know? What is he willing to tell prosecutors? And I think that has really upped the ante for the Trump administration here.
0: And and then maybe one other thing to mention, just his press conference um, on Monday night with the Italian, when he was alongside the Italian prime minister, and he made this um, totally unexpected uh, remark that he'd be happy to meet the Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani, um, with no preconditions. Again, maybe not a flip-flop, but it's certainly a change in tone. What are we to make of that?
1: Absolutely. I think this is, again, Donald Trump suggesting some kind of new change in strategy on foreign policy, where, again, it seems to be pretty incoherent. This took everyone by surprise. He was speaking in response to a question about whether he would sit down with the Iranians. He said, yes, he would. Um, If they want to meet, I'll meet. He said, I'll meet with anybody. There's nothing wrong with meeting. So he he kind of gave this line that he had given ahead of his meeting with Kim Jong-un. Now, that does not seem like any way that it's it's going to happen for for, for a number of reasons. Um, His own administration doesn't seem to be behind this. Um, There was a response uh, from Tehran, the foreign ministry spokesman more or less said that this is not a possibility. It's no possibility of dialogue and engagement um, at the moment. Obviously, the reason being that the United States pulled out of the 2015 um, Iran nuclear deal. Uh, The Iranians still believe that stands, the European countries are still signatories to that deal. So it looks like he was kind of throwing out this idea and and knowing that it was never really going to happen. Even within, within, on the same day, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo seemed to criticize the president. He, Donald Trump had said, suggested that the, he would meet them with no preconditions. But Pompeo said on Tuesday that Iran would have to demonstrate a commitment to, to change in how they treat their own people, that uh, they need to reduce their malign behavior, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. So very much saying there that preconditions did need to be met uh, before the US would consider sitting sitting down at the table with, with the, the Iranian president and the regime.
0: Now, amidst all these political developments, Suzanne, there's a fascinating row developing and escalating really today between Trump and and the Koch brothers. And these are two of America's richest men and major donors to the Republican Party and to to, uh, conservative causes. Uh, Tell us about that.
1: Mm. Yeah, this is fascinating. The Koch brothers are a hugely important political force here in America and and pretty much household names. I've, I've noticed since moving here, people discuss the Koch brothers. They're very well known. There are uh, two elderly brothers um, who are, inherited their father's business, which is a huge oil and refinery business that was set up in 1940. And it's one of the biggest companies in the US. It's the second largest privately held uh, business uh, in the US. And these two brothers, David and Charles Koch, uh, majority, have majority control of that business. They've also been hugely influential in funding Republican and conservative causes for many years. Uh, and they've been much maligned for this, in fact, by people on the left, particularly for their uh, position on climate change, on combating notions about climate change, the dangers of climate change. People like John Kerry, Al Gore have name-checked the Koch brothers, uh, who essentially have been funding these programmes, arguing against the reality of of climate change. Obviously, their business interests are obvious here. They're in the the fossil fuel business, so uh, so, so no no, uh, surprises that this is the stance they take. But they also have been funding uh, all different kinds of uh, policies and political groups and advocacy groups on the right here in America. Um, they're huge donors, multi-million uh, dollar donors, and they, uh, you know, Republicans need to listen to them. They fund campaigns, they fund adver- advertisements, etc. In front uh, ahead of elections. So what have they but done since, to annoy the to annoy yeah, the president? Yeah. So, so what happened is they were never comfortable about Donald Trump. So during the 2016 elections, they essentially sat that out. Um, They said they were going to fund more congressional races, but not the presidency of Donald Trump. So there's always been tensions between the Koch brothers and Trump. Now this weekend, they had a meeting of donors in Colorado Springs in Kansas. Um, It was quite uh, under the radar. A few journalists were allowed to cover it, but uh, under certain uh, rules, they could not disclose who was attending unless those people allowed their identity to be revealed. But what did emerge from this meeting is that they criticized uh, Donald Trump. And there were reports early this week that um, one of their most senior, their co-chairs of their network, Brian Hooks, criticised the tremendous lack of leadership in Washington. He talked about the deterioration of the core institutions of society and he talked about the divisiveness of the White House. Now, the next day, Charles Cook, one of the brothers, uh, did seem to kind of back off slightly, He didn't name Trump in particular, but they've made it clear they're not happy with the administration's policies in Washington on, on two issues, really, on trade. They're against uh, these protectionist moves uh, imposing tariffs on imports into the United States and also on immigration. And um, they, they do not agree on Donald Trump's uh, hard stance on immigration, uh, mainly well, for one reason, because how it's going to affect the economy in terms of seasonal workers, et cetera. So I think this is a real worry uh, for the Republican Party in general. Um, If these major donors start losing faith in the Republican Party. But this morning, Tuesday morning, Donald Trump uh, hit out at the Koch brothers in a tweet. He lambasted them. He he described them as a total joke in Republican circles. He said he didn't need their money or their bad ideas. And he boasted that his policy had made them richer. So it's a really real upping of the ante now in terms of the tensions between the Trump administration and these very, very powerful uh, group of donors.
0: And with those tweets by Trump uh, today, would would they send a shudder down the spine of Republican candidates all over the US?
1: Exactly, because one of the most important ways the Koch brothers make their mark is by funding and by supporting different congressional candidates. So, for example, at the weekend, not only did they criticize Trump, they also said they weren't going to support certain Republican candidates in the midterm election. So, for example, the Republican candidate... Uh, in North Dakota, they said, Kevin Kramer is his name, they said they would not support him, essentially because he hasn't stood up to Trump on some of these more divisive policies on trade and immigration. So I think a lot of these people who are hoping for the support from the Koch brothers are going to be very, very worried now that they could be losing some of this well, uh, much needed funding.
0: And the other thing, Suzanne, he's done in the last couple of days, I think, that has worried Republicans is he's renewed his threat to shut down the government If Democrats don't support these plans on immigration, in in particular, the Mexican border wall. And that's the last thing, am I right, that Republicans want running up to this elections in November?
1: Exactly. Again, more flip-flopping from Trump. Last week, uh, the the House of Representatives has more or less finished for the summer break. The Senate is still here. But there's a sense that things were being wrapped up late last week here in Washington. And the the main Republicans in Congress, Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, met with Donald Trump. And really, from their comments after that meeting, it seemed to suggest that they were on the same page with the President, that it had been more or less agreed that, yes, some funding for immigration that would indirectly go to border security in the wall was agreed. But really, the big political battle over the border wall would not take place until after the November uh, midterm elections. And then fast forward to this weekend and Donald Trump began tweeting about this issue, saying that in fact he did want full funding for the border wall, um, 25 billion they need for that wall. He said he's insisting the Democrats back calls for that and saying that if not, he would be prepared to force a government shutdown. The, uh, the government is funded until September 30th. We've already had two pretty short but two shutdowns this year and Donald Trump Trump has now seems to be appearing to use that as a threat um so I think again this has left a lot of Republicans exasperated that he seems to be going back on his word they do not want to fight this immigration battle about the wall that's so divisive ahead of the November elections particularly um it's a particular issue for those politicians who are looking to retain seats or contest seats in areas that are 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 anti-Trump and that are more leaning democratic because Any notion uh, that they had support the the construction of a border wall would not play well with constituents in those kind of swing districts.
0: And on those elections in November, Suzanne, just to remind people, all of the seats in the House of Representatives are up for grabs and about a third of the seats in the Senate. What's the latest state of play? I mean, it's obviously a very broad and wide picture, but what are the indications at this stage in terms of the Democrats' ambitions to to, to retake control of of one or both houses?
1: Yeah, well, the... the, the Most people believe that the Republicans um, have more of a chance of holding on to control of the Senate, whereas the Democrats have more of a chance of flipping the House of Representatives. A number of factors are at play here. The maths uh, are are in favour of the Republicans on the Senate side. The seats uh, that are coming up uh, for renewal kind of suit the Republican Party, if you like, whereas um, the Democrats seem to have a stronger chance on flipping the House for a number of reasons. A, traditionally the party in opposition does well in midterms. B, there's been a huge number of uh, retirements uh, on the Republican side, about 42 seats uh, by incumbent Republicans won't be contested. So that gives a huge uh, boost, if you like, to Democrats. Um, so I think the a focus uh, for a lot of Democrats now are, I mean, I was talking to people here who work for uh, different members of Congress who are in pretty safe Democratic seats. So their aim now is to go out campaigning across the country in swing districts, places like Florida, Nevada, areas of, of Pennsylvania, maybe even West Virginia, and try and win uh, these kind of swing uh, seats Uh, And their main focus will be on seats that, um, the the anti-Trump vote, the seats that maybe voted for Hillary Clinton um, or traditionally had a Democratic vote that then switched to Republican in recent years. So, yeah, that seems to be um, the state of play at the moment. But as you say, it's, it's about 100 days out of the midterms. Um, Very, very difficult to call it. But I think the behaviour of Donald Trump will weigh on people's minds, uh, both in terms of those who really support him and and those who are motivated to go out and vote against him because of their kind of visceral (laughs) opposition to Donald Trump.
0: And how much of a game changer would it be for the Trump presidency if he didn't have a Republican controlled Congress to deal with?
1: Well, it would have huge implications in terms of any uh, impeachment. Um, the way impeachment works is that the House of Representatives moves to launch impeachment pr- proceedings and then but for, for a president to be impeached, it needs uh, two thirds of the Senate to back that. Uh, so if if the Democrats were to get control of the House of Representatives, yes, that would be a huge, that would be the, fir- the first worry for Donald Trump that they could launch uh, impeachment proceedings against him. Of course, this all depends on the timing of the Mueller investigation, whether and what it, it, it finds out and eventually does report. But then apart from that, I mean, he would be like every president, he would be finding it extremely difficult uh, to push through any of his policies, um, particularly on tax, things like Obamacare could really resurface as an issue. It was a huge issue in the first year of his presidency has died down uh, somewhat now. And then, of course, immigration, the idea of the border wall will, could really then emerge as a huge political issue if Democrats are back in control. They are very, very um, opposed, obviously to supporting any funding for
0: that war. And we often remark, Suzanne, on how, in general, people remark on how controversies that would have ruined other political careers that seem to leave no mark on Trump. But in the case of, this is a different, isn't it, in the case of elections, if his policies or his actions or statements are seen to, um, or are blamed for, if you like, uh, Republicans lose, losing support in the elections, mm. that does have a real impact on him and on, and on his presidency.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think the, the, what to watch for is, is, is if Republicans underperform in these November elections, which is highly possible, uh, then we may see some senior Republicans really seriously turn against Donald Trump. At the moment, they've basically weighed in behind him and they believe he's a good vote getter. And they've essentially, to his critics, allowed him to get away with so much, um, particularly in the last six months or so. And I think they have bedded down their, their support for him. But if Republicans are to underperform, that will change completely, I would say. I'd say you see a lot of Republicans then speaking out more forcibly, not backing Donald Trump on some of his policies, et cetera. So the the stakes are are, are pretty big. Um, They're really huge. And, of course, the worry for Republicans, it's very difficult to predict in terms of polling. And, of course, polling in this country um, was revealed to be so so flawed ahead of the 2016 elections. But I suppose the worry is that in any special election so far that's been held, essentially a by-election, Democrats have outperformed they have done better in Republican health special ele- districts uh, in various elections that have been taking place there's only a handful but they're important so that indication would suggest if if we base it on that the Democrats could do better than expected and this would be a real blow to Donald Trump's authority, essentially.
0: OK. Well, Suzanne, you're about to take some holidays, very well-earned. Uh, is the president about to go on holidays as well? or I mean, uh, uh, the political, we, does the political season sort of continue in Washington through August or mm, things quieten down a bit?
1: We, we don't know details of his holidays, but uh, he's expected, like last year, to spend about 10 days or so in his golf club in New Jersey, in Bedminster. But... Um, What happened last year, if people cast their minds back, he was on holidays there, but then the North Korea crisis emerged where he warned about fire and Fury um, from his, his New Jersey golf course. So even though he may be there on vacation, that's no guarantee that. Actually, the news agenda will slow down. Um, as I say, yeah, the House of Representatives is gone on, on summer vacation. The Senate is still here passing through some spending bills. Uh, so, yeah, relatively speaking, um, in terms of the daily legislative business here in Washington, it will slow down, um, like many other um, systems around the world. But Donald Trump will still be at the Twitter button, if you like, uh, and no doubt there will still be a lot of news flow, I think, uh, from the President wherever he may spend, most of August.
0: So unless somebody can, we can wrestle his phone from him, he's going to keep us keep us busy. Unlikely, I mornings. think. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Suzanne, that's great. Th- thanks for that. That was Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent. It's to Zimbabwe now where votes are being counted in a potentially historic general election, the first since Robert Mugabe's removal from office last November. There are 23 candidates for President, but voters are essentially choosing between two of them. Emerson Manangagwa, the current president and the former close associate of Mugabe's, and the youthful opposition leader, Nelson Chamisa. Bill Corcoran is our correspondent in Harare, and he joins me now from there. Bill, this is by all accounts set to be a very close result. What's the latest on the count?
2: Well, we are still unclear in relation to official news on how it's going. Um, About about 3pm local time, there will be indications from the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, uh, about the first results that are coming in. But um, there have been parallel counts going on around the country. Around the country, after polling stations closed, counting started straight away, and results started coming in uh, late last night. And from what I could see from pictures that were being posted up on Twitter, uh, Nelson Chimisa was winning in an, an awful lot of the cases. However, there are 11,000 polling booths, so there's still a long way to go. And um, both candidates seem very confident um, and both are uh, expecting to win, I think.
0: And is there an indication, Bill, as to when we will have a definitive result?
2: There has to be a definitive result by Thursday, but I would imagine that by tomorrow we would have a clear indication uh,
0: who's going to win. That is that is that is Wednesday. Tell us something, about just uh, yeah, a reminder of the, the, the two candidates. Emerson Manangagwa, he's Mugabe's former right-hand man. He's accused of masterminding attacks on opposition supporters uh, in 2008 after the election then. And yet he does claim to represent a break from the oppressive Mugabe regime, uh, does he?
2: Well, that's what he claims. He goes all the way back to the 1970s when Mugabe, uh, he was one of, one of the youngest uh, ministers in Mugabe's first government in the 80s. He's accused of um, rigging most of the elections um, up until this one for uh, Zanu-PF under Mugabe. But uh, he's also part of a um, factionalism in the ruling party, and there were two main factions. He was leading one, and this other faction called Generation Party. Um, just before the coup occurred uh, last November, uh, Mugabe had fired Mugabe, and then when the military took over, they re. They invaded Mugabe as the new interim president. So he has been preaching um, that Dana PF is going to um, carve a new way forward uh, under his regime.
0: Now, one of the striking differences between him um, and, of course, his opponent, Nelson Chamisa, the leader of the opposition MDC, is, is age yes, alone. Exactly. Managagwa is, is 75, Chamisa is 40. Um, so he certainly represents change in, in more obvious ways. Tell us tell us something about him.
2: Yeah, Nelson Chamisa, he uh, would have been part of the MDCs from a very young age. Uh, he's been arriving rising star since uh, 2000. And unfortunately, uh, Morgan Changrai, the previous, leader of the MDC. He passed away uh, in February, and Chimisa came out on top in, in the race to sort of lead that party. He has He's very energetic, very charismatic. He's a 40-year-old lawyer and a recently qualified pastor. And initially, people thought that he wouldn't be able to gain an awful lot of support. They thought there'd be a lot of goodwill towards Mugabe because of his um, part in overthrowing Mugabe. But it seems as the days have led down to the election, he's managed to uh, drum up an awful lot of support. I was at the very last campaign rally for both parties uh, Saturday, and at the uh, NBC rally, there was at least 100,000 people there. Uh, he, he's, he's really grasping our, our imagination of the, the youth, and probably given his young age. Uh, unemployment in the youth in Zimbabwe is, 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 is near 90 percent, so they are looking for somebody of their own ilk, of their own age group, to try to take the country forward, make a break with the past. Uh, And and McGregor, unfortunately for him, is linked to the colonial uh, era.
0: And it's a very youthful electorate, isn't it? About half of the 5.6 million voters are are under 35. So presumably this is in uh, Chamise's favour.
2: Yes, you would think so. And he has been playing that card all the way along. He he has um, been Telling the youth that he is their man and he is the one to take
0: the country forward. And what are the policy differences between them?
2: Really, there aren't that many policy differences. They're both promising to take the um, to revive the economy. Zimbabwe's economy is absolutely crippled, and um, unemployment is, is estimated to be at around ninety percent. Uh, industry has crashed. Agriculture is non-existent, and Zimbabwe used to be called the breadbasket of Africa. Uh, for either of them to do that, there has to be uh, international observers need to declare this election free or fair because mass investment from abroad is needed to kickstart the economy. But in in reality, it's not really about different policies, but it's it's about one breaking with the past um, and the other representing the past.
0: OK. And you mentioned the observers there and election observers from the EU and, and the US have been allowed in to monitor this election for the first time in, in 16 years now, they haven't officially reported yet, but what are the indications in terms of how fair this poll has been otherwise?
2: The international observers will give a preliminary statement on Wednesday on, on how they have seen things. Um, well, there's uh, a group called the Zimbabwe Election Support Network, which is a group of uh, local NGOs that have been monitoring the polling uh, across the country at all the polling stations. Uh, there were nearly 11,000 polling stations yesterday. Uh, they have released information today on how the, the, the vote went uh, Under from, from their perspective. They used a sample of 750 polling stations um, and some of the information is quite interesting. It does seem that, compared to previous years, it, it has been a much um, uh, violence-free and, and far less intimidation on polling day itself. They have found that... Um, in 6% of polling stations, people were turned away, uh, and that would be 26 or more people. Um, most of this occurred in Harare. Uh, another uh, interesting fact is that um, 45% of polling stations, people were illegally assisted to vote. Uh, and in 57 or 58% of these instances, this was done by polling officers. Now, that's illegal. Um,
0: but in overall terms, Bill, have they kind of they given it a clean bill of health overall? Or is, it, or is, that, is that still um, kind of th- that report is weighted, is it?
2: It's certainly a cleaner bill of health than in previous years in terms of what happened on Election Day.
0: And, and tell us, Bill, what's, it's the, it's what's the atmosphere been like? I mean, I just um, I remember when Mugabe was toppled in November, even just watching the news, the sense of excitement in Zimbabwe was palpable, especially among young people. Has that carried through into, into this election?
2: It has carried through. Um, the atmosphere on polling day and in the days leading up is much different than in previous years. So I was here in 2005, 2008, and people would be afraid to talk to you about their, who they wanted to, to win elections. This time around, when I went into uh, a township called Barry to talk to people at a polling station, and. Um, people from the NDC uh, supporters who were openly talking about they wanted the NDC to win. they were standing beside ZANU pf supporters who were happy to hear them say it. In previous years, these people would have been at loggerheads and there would have been a lot of violence. Um, ZANU pf really wouldn't have liked NDC supporters to display t-shirts or Spoke openly about their preferences for both. Yeah, so it was much, much safer, and um, it, it's a to
0: the Zimbabwe. Okay, Bill. Well, we've an interesting day or ahead, and we, as we await the official outcome of the of the election, you'll be continuing to report on it for us at the Irish Times. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.